sing in response to the sermon, Psalter 292, the fifth stanza. Beloved congregation, supper time is a wonderful time of day. There's nothing more satisfying than working hard all day and coming home to a delicious meal. Now the Lord is also preparing a supper. And children, this supper is the best supper imaginable. You you might like McDonald's. You might like chicken nuggets or a Big Mac. But that's nothing compared to the supper that Jesus tells us about in this portion of the Word of God. And my task tonight is to try to make this supper so irresistible to you that you cannot help but partake of it. The Lord Jesus tells us of this supper in the passage that we read together in Luke chapter 14, the parable of the great supper, not to be confused with the parable of the wedding feast, which is recorded in Matthew 22. There's a lot of similarities between those two parables, but they're totally different parables. The context of the parable is very interesting. It was the Sabbath day. And the Lord Jesus and his disciples were invited into the home of a certain Pharisee for dinner. This was no ordinary Pharisee. Luke says he was a chief Pharisee. And while he was there, he saw a man with dropsy, and Jesus healed him, even though it was the Sabbath day. And the Pharisees taught that it was unlawful to heal on the Sabbath day. But Jesus did it anyway. And then as the Lord Jesus was sitting there waiting for the meal to begin, he observed the guests. And what he noticed was that as the guests came into the banquet hall, they jockeyed with each other for the best seats at the table. Now in ancient times, the closer you sat to the head of the table, where the host sat, the more important you were. And so this is what they were all doing. They were jockeying to see who could get closest to the most important positions at the table. And Jesus is sort of standing back and he's watching this all happen. And he says, you know, you really shouldn't do that. You should instead take the lowest place at the table so that when the host comes in and he sees you sitting at the lowest place and you deserve to sit at a higher place, he will say to you, come on up a little closer to me. Because if you sit at the highest place and he sees you sitting there and somebody more important than you is sitting there, he's going to say, hey, can you move down a few places, please, to let this more important person sit next to me? And that would be horribly embarrassing. And then Jesus spoke to the host, this Pharisee who was throwing this this dinner party. And he said, you know, I noticed that the people that you invited, they're all like you. They're all rich people. They're your friends. They're your neighbors. And eventually they're going to invite you back. So what have you gained by that? Jesus says, instead of inviting inviting your friends and neighbors and, and the people that are going to invite you back, invite the people that don't have the wherewithal to invite you back. The poor, the lame, the maimed, and the blind. And you do that, Jesus says, and you'll be rewarded on the day of resurrection. So you can can sense the tension building, can't you? First, Jesus heals this man on the Sabbath day. Then he rebukes all of the people that are sitting around the table for jockeying for the best positions. Then he rebukes the host himself. You can almost cut the atmosphere with a knife. And just at this point, a man, we don't know who he was, but a man blurts out 
Blessed is he that shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Just like that. Now he's talking here, of course, about the eschatological kingdom. He's talking about the kingdom of God as it will exist in the life to come. And this particular man is pronouncing a blessing on those who will eat bread in this kingdom, which is really another way of saying those who will enjoy the benefits of this kingdom. Now again, who this man was, we don't know. It's not even clear why he said this. But it's likely this man was a Pharisee. And it's likely this man is saying to Jesus, you know, we're better than anybody else because we keep the law of God not like the other Jews. We're holy. We're very particular. We're very precise. And we are the ones who are going to eat bread in the kingdom of heaven. And therefore, we are the ones who are the most blessed. Well, when Jesus heard this, he proceeded to tell the parable of our text the parable of the Great Supper. And it's to this parable that we turn our attention with the Lord's help this afternoon. And my theme is God's Great Supper. We'll consider, first of all, the preparation He makes, secondly, the invitation He extends, and then thirdly, the guests He receives. First, then, the preparations He makes. Jesus in this parable, children, is asking us to imagine a great supper, a big banquet. Now, maybe some of you have been to weddings before, and you know at a wedding, a reception, there's usually a long table, if it's a, if it's a smorgasbord type of, of affair, and, and there's, there's all kinds of food on the table. You've seen that before, right? And on the table, there's all kinds of food, wonderful food, delicious food. Well, Jesus wants you to imagine a table like that full of wonderful food. And all of this food, this whole banquet, was prepared by a certain man. Now, the man in the parable is obviously God. He's the one who's preparing this great supper. But what is the supper? What is Jesus conveying to us here? Well, the supper in the parable is really a symbol of Christ. And more particularly, it's a symbol of all the blessings and all the benefits that are to be found in Christ. And Jesus compares this to a supper. Now, in doing that, he's drawing from Old Testament imagery. You may remember in Isaiah 25, after describing there the victory that God will accomplish over his enemies, Isaiah declares this. He says, in this mountain, he's probably talking about Mount Zion here, in this mountain, Isaiah says, shall the Lord of hosts make unto all people a feast of fat things, a feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, of wines on the lees well refined. What's Isaiah talking about here? What is this feast of fat things? This is Christ. This is salvation in Christ. This is all the benefits that are to be found in Christ. It's like a feast. Now in what sense is salvation in Christ like a feast? Let me suggest several ways. First of all, a feast or a supper has to be consumed. Children, you know that when mom makes supper and she puts it on the table, it's not going to do you any good to just sit around the table and look at the food and say, wow, mom, that looks great. You did a lot of work on this food. And it smells so good and it looks so delicious. And you just sat there. Your tummy wouldn't be filled, would it? You'd go away from the table feeling very hungry. No, in order to benefit from the supper, you must partake of it, don't you? And so it is when it comes to Christ. The gospel of the Lord Jesus is not just something to be admired. It's not like a, like a piece of art that we hang on the wall. And we say, look at that beautiful piece of art. Isn't it nice? Look at the perspective. Look at the colors. 
And we just stand there and we admire it at a distance. That's not what the gospel is for. The gospel is not just to be admired and to be spoken well of. The gospel is to be appropriated. Christ and His benefits are to become ours by faith in Him. Secondly, a supper consists of several dishes. You've seen this too at a wedding. I've already spoken about that. At a wedding, there's a table, and on the table, there's there's all kinds of different food. There's three or four vegetables, some salads, a couple of different kinds of meat, some chicken and some pork and and some roast beef, and there's gravy, and there's there's desserts, and, and, and it's all there. Sometimes it's hard to hard to, to stop. It looks so good, and, and it's all for free. That's the best part. You can just eat and eat and eat. And, and uh, that's what a banquet is all about. It's, it's wonderful. There's all these dishes. And when you think about salvation in Christ, you, you can't help but think that that on, on the salvation table of the Lord, there are also all of these dishes, all these different delectable dishes. And the, the, they're, they're, they're over there. I see, I see a, a bowl there. And, and just imagine that that bowl has, has in it the forgiveness of sins. Now, we need the forgiveness of sins, don't we? Unless we have the forgiveness of sins, we cannot stand before God. So, so there's the forgiveness of sins. It's on the table. And then there's another bull, and, and, and it has eternal life. Now, who wouldn't want to live forever? Everybody wants to live forever. But this, is, this is eternal life. This is, this is eternal life with God. And in a glorified body without sin, without imperfection. And, and that's on the table. And, and then there's the Holy Spirit and His gifts. The fruit of the Holy Spirit. There's another bull, another dish on the table. And you just, you just imagine that. There's the adoption of sons. Who would not want to be a son or a daughter of God? Who would not want to have God as their father? And Christ Jesus as their elder brother. Well, all these dishes are set on the table. And in that sense, they're like the salvation in Christ is like a supper. A great supper also comes at a great cost. It costs a lot of money to put on a banquet like that. And those of you who have had daughters that have been married, you know what it costs to, to host a reception. It's thousands and thousands of dollars in most cases. Well, you know the salvation that the Lord Jesus has earned for his people also cost him more than we can ever possibly imagine. It cost him his life. Peter speaks about the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We could say the priceless blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That was the cost of this salvation. But the main reason why Jesus compares His salvation to a supper is because a supper has to be prepared, doesn't it? If you're going to put on a banquet like this, you've got to go to the grocery store or to Costco, and you've got to buy a lot of different groceries. And, and then you have to prepare everything. You've got to cook the meat and the vegetables and peel the potatoes. It's a lot of work. You just can't have a feast and like that, just like that. It takes a lot of preparation and a lot of planning. Well, you know, so does, so does salvation. Salvation was prepared. It was prepared by God Himself. Already in the recesses of eternity, long before God created the heavens and the earth and everything in it, long before He created you and me, God decreed that He would save a certain number out of the whole human race and that He would send His Son, Jesus Christ, to die for their sins. And it was all planned out from all eternity. You see, the plan of salvation was not an afterthought. It wasn't God's plan B. God didn't just you know, create the world and, and watch to see what man was going to do without knowing what man was going to do. No, God foreknew from all eternity that man would fall into sin and He had His plan in place. And it was all prepared. 
And it was all perfectly executed in time because in the fullness of time, as Paul says, the Lord Jesus Christ left the bosom of His Father in heaven and He came to this earth and He was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary and He was born. A real man with real flesh and real blood like you and like me and He grew up and He ministered. He preached the gospel. He preached, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He performed miracles. He did all the work that His Father had given Him to do. And at the end of His life, He went to the cross where He suffered the most painful, the most humiliating, the most cursed death imaginable, the death of the cross. It was a whole plan that was perfectly planned and perfectly executed. This is the supper that God has prepared. Now, when a supper is prepared, what happens? Children, when mom has supper on the table, what does she do? Well, she calls everybody to the table, right? She says, go and call everybody. Supper is ready. And then one of the children goes out and says, mom, dad, children, it's time for supper. And all the kids come down and they sit at their places around the table. Well, that's what happened here in the parable. This man, he he prepared everything. Everything was on the table. And then, at just the right moment, he sent out one of his servants, and he told them, Go and tell them that were bidden, Come, for all things are now ready. So this man had put a lot of work into this feast. He spent a lot of money on this feast. And he laid out all the dishes on the table, set all the chairs just so. Everything was ready. Everything was prepared. The only thing that was lacking were the guests. And so the servant goes out. And he invites the guests to come. Now what happened? Children, what happened? Did the guests come right away? Did they come with hungry tummies? Did they come, oh, I can't wait. I've been waiting for this for such a long time. I can't wait to dig in and fill my belly with all this delicious food. Is that that what happened? That's not what happened at all. Because we read in the parable that when the guests received the invitations, they began one by one to make excuses as to why they could not come. And one man said, I can't come because I just purchased a field and I have to go and inspect it. Another man said, well, I can't come. I just bought five yoke of oxen and I've got to try them out. And another man said, well, I can't come. I just got married the other day. can't possibly leave my wife behind. But when you think about it, congregation, did any of these excuses have any validity at all? I mean, think about, think about the man who bought the piece of land. Would you buy a piece of land without looking at it first? Of course you wouldn't. It's obvious that this man had bought the piece of land. He had inspected it already. He was just looking for an excuse. Sometimes we do that too, right? We get an invitation to go to somebody's house for dinner or a wedding and we don't particularly want to go and so we look for excuses here, there, and everywhere to try to get out from underneath the obligation. That's what this man is doing. He's inventing some reasonable, plausible explanation as to why he cannot come. But it didn't hold any water. And besides that, he could have inspected the land on some other day. It didn't have to be done that particular day. Land's not going anywhere. What about the man who bought the five yoke of oxen? He said, I need to try them out. Really? Really? I mean, would you buy five yoke of oxen without looking at them first? And could that not also have been done on another day? And as for the man who married a wife, well, if the man who's putting on the banquet prepared such a great feast, would it really matter if there was one more person at the feast? Would the man say, I'm sorry, she's not invited? No, 
but of the goodness of his heart, he would say, of course, bring your wife along too. The more, the merrier. So there were no valid excuses. And what is more, this in, the initial invitation to attend this banquet, remember, would have been sent out weeks before this. And it's likely that the people that were invited had agreed to come. Otherwise, the man would not have known how much food to prepare. And yet, these people, they left it to the very last minute. Just when everything is on the table, and the food is piping hot, and the wine is nice and cold, they say to the servant, we cannot come. Now what we have here, beloved, is a picture. It's a picture of the history of God's dealings with the Jews, with the people of Israel, God's covenant people. God had been so good to them. He had made a covenant with them. He promised to be their God. He said that they were going to be His people, and He he would provide for them, and He did, and He delivered them out of slavery in Egypt. He parted the Red Sea. He led them through the wilderness by a pillar of cloud and fire, and He fed them with with, with quail and with manna. He brought them to Mount Sinai where He gave them His law. He established His covenant with them. And he, entered, he allowed them to enter into the promised land, the best land that there was, a land flowing with milk and honey. And He defeated all of their enemies before them. Yes, God had established a covenant with them, and the Jews had entered into that covenant. They agreed to the stipulations of that covenant They said, yes, God, we will be your people. We will keep your law. They had accepted the invitation. God had issued the invitation, and they had accepted the invitation. They willingly entered into covenant with God. And what is even more, God promised to send them a Savior in the person of His only well-beloved, only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, who, as I said already, came down from heaven, left the glories and the riches of heaven to come down to this earth to suffer and to die. And there He was, in the home of this Pharisee. He was living among these people. He was preaching the gospel. He was performing miracles. And he was inviting sinners to come to him. Come unto me, he said, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But how did they respond to him? How did they respond to his invitations to come to him and live? They declined. Why did they decline? Why did they reject Jesus as their Messiah? Well, because Jesus didn't measure up to the kind of Messiah that they were looking for. You see, they were looking for some kind of political Messiah. Somebody who would deliver them from from the bondage of Rome. Set them free from Roman domination. And set up again the kingdom of David in the land of Israel. Jesus wasn't that kind of Messiah. Jesus himself explicitly said, my kingdom is not of this world. And when the Jews heard that, they rejected him. And they despised him. And they eventually put him to death. John put it so poignantly, didn't he? He came unto his own, and what? And his own received him not. Now, what about us? In so many ways, we are like the Jews, aren't we? God has also made covenant with us and with our children. And we brought our children to the baptism font 
when they were young. And in baptism, God gives us the sign and seal of His covenant. He enters into a covenant with us. He promises to be our God. He promises to adopt us for His children. He promises to bestow upon us all the blessings of salvation in Christ if we repent and believe on His Son. It's like in baptism, God has given us an invitation. It's like a card. You can almost think of it that way. And on that card, it says, it says all the blessings of salvation in full. It's got your name on it. And it's signed by God Himself. He has sent out the invitation. And every Sunday again in the preaching of the Word of God, the invitation goes out in the call of the Gospel to come to Christ, to believe in Christ, to live for Christ. But what have we done with that? How have we responded to those gracious invitations of the Gospel? You know, there are always people in every generation who make excuses, just like the people in our text. And maybe I'm speaking to somebody here this afternoon. What kind of excuses do you have for remaining unconverted? What kind of excuses do you have for not coming to Christ? Now, some people say, well, I'm not worthy. My sins are too great. Well, if you really believe that, you would come to Christ. Because He's the only one who can wash away the filthiness of those sins. Someone else says, well, I'm willing, but the Lord is not willing. I have asked Him many times to change me, to convert me, and, and I'm still not converted. And there's nothing I can do about that because God is sovereign after all. And we are dead in trespasses and sins and we can do nothing. All we can do is sit and wait and hope. Hope against hope in some cases. But is that true? Oh yes, God is absolutely sovereign in salvation. Absolutely He is. And yes, we are totally, absolutely dead in trespasses and sins and we have no free will. We cannot just decide in and of ourselves that I'm going to be saved. That's absolutely true. But while God is 100% sovereign, and you've heard this many times, also when I was your pastor many years ago, man is also 100% responsible. And how those two things fit together, you can, you can try to reconcile those two things in your mind, but you'll never be able to. I've given up on that a long time ago. It's not necessary either. Both are true. And we can't hide behind the sovereignty of God. We can't hide behind the doctrine of election. The fact of the matter is the gospel call comes to all indiscriminately and everyone is invited, urged to come to Christ. There are others who see no need to respond to this call. Or they think that they have plenty of time to repent. And in the meantime, they're going to keep on sowing their wild oats and living for the here and now and living for this world and the things of this world. But this is so utterly foolish you know, that's how the rich man felt. You know, he had such an abundant harvest. You remember the story? And he decided to tear down his existing barns and build bigger barns, and he packed them full. And he sat back and he said, Soul, take thine ease. You have an abundance in store for many years to come. You can sit back and relax and take it easy. At that night, God came to him and said, You fool. The message of salvation, beloved, is not tomorrow 
or next year or on your deathbed. The timing, God's timing is today. Today, today is the day of salvation. Harden not your heart. And it's today because we don't know what tomorrow will bring. Look at the fool, the rich fool. Just when he thought he had it made, God came and he took his soul away. And now he's in hell. No, we need to respond, beloved. And there are no valid excuses. Now, maybe some of you are saying, well, how can I respond? Did you not just say that we are dead in trespasses and sins and that we have no ability in and of ourselves? And yes, I did say that, and yes, that is absolutely true. But you know, there are people who try to get out from under that by removing a certain tension that God himself has placed in the gospel. The tension is, on the one hand, you cannot, and on the other hand, you must. Now that tension is in there. That tension is placed in the call of the gospel by God himself. And we may not remove that tension. We may not remove it by appealing to the sovereignty of God or appealing to the inability of man. That tension needs to stay there. And that tension is put there by God for a purpose that we might feel like we're in a vice. That on the one hand we cannot, the other hand we must, and that in turn must drive us to the Lord saying, Lord, save me. Because I can't do it. And I will not do it. But what I cannot do, what I am not willing to do, I know that thou art willing. And thou art able. So do not delay, beloved. If you're outside of Christ, if you haven't partaken of this wonderful feast that the Lord has prepared before you, Stop making excuses. Come and partake of it. All things are now ready. It's there for you. And God invites you tenderly, sweetly, graciously, lovingly. Come and partake of all the delectable dainties that are to be found in His Son. And so the invitation of the host went out and was largely rejected. So what did the man in our parable do? Well, first of all, he got very angry when he heard that the people that he had invited, the people that had accepted his invitations, when he heard that they were not coming, he was angry, and rightly so. I mean, how dare they? Refuse an invitation just when everything is being served. Just when the whole meal has been prepared, bought and paid for, and prepared. And ready to be consumed. How dare they, at the last minute, cancel the reservation. That is rude. And it is selfish. And what was the man going to do with all of that food? He certainly couldn't allow it to go to waste. So what did he do? Well, he commanded his servant to go out quickly. Quickly. No time to waste. Food. It's all prepared. It's going to get cold. Quickly, he said to his servant, go out into the lanes of the city and bring in, guess who? The poor. The maimed. The lame. And the blind. And he was specifically instructed by the man to bring them in. Now, why did he say that? Because left to themselves, they couldn't come. They didn't have the wherewithal. They didn't have the ability. The blind couldn't see. They didn't know the way to the banquet house. Now, the maimed and the lame, they could see all right, but they couldn't walk. 
And so the servant had to make arrangements to bring all of these people in to the banqueting house. And the servant dutifully followed his master's orders. And when all was said and done, and all these people were seated at the table, the, the servant noticed one thing. There were still empty seats. This was unacceptable. The man had prepared all this food. None of it must go to waste. And so he sends his servant out again. And he says, go now into the highways and into the hedges and compel them to come in so that my house may be filled. Now, who are these people? Well, you notice that the first group of people were from the city, and that suggests that they were Jews. They were within the sphere of the covenant of grace. But notice that they're described as the poor and the maimed and the halt and the blind. And that suggests that these were not ordinary Jews. These were the riffraff of Jewish society. These were the lowlifes, the nobodies, the publicans and the sinners. The people that Jesus regularly hung out with and dined with. So much so that the Pharisees and the scribes accused him, saying, you are the friend of publicans and sinners. For the Lord Jesus, that was a badge of honor. People in the second group, you'll notice, are not from the city. That suggests that they represent the Gentiles. These were the people in the hedges and the highways, not members of the covenant of grace not members of God's chosen people. They are the outsiders, and they too are invited. And you see that, don't you? Throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament, even during the ministry of the Lord Jesus, there was Rahab and there was Ruth. They were brought into the covenant family of God. In the New Testament, there was the Syrophoenician woman and the centurion. And slowly but surely, the Lord Jesus was drawing the Gentiles. Remember those two Greeks came to Philip and they said, Sir, we would see Jesus. The Gentiles were were full of expectation and longing to come to Christ. And when Jesus ascended into heaven and He poured out His Holy Spirit upon His church, what did the disciples do? They went out from Jerusalem and they proclaimed the gospel and the Gentiles came into the church in droves. And the house of the man was filled. Not an empty place was at the table. Now what do we learn from all of this? Let me give you a few lessons we can learn from this. First of all, we learn here who will accept the invitation of Christ and come to Him. Who are the ones who will accept the invitation of Christ to come to Him? It's not the Pharisees or the scribes. Why not? Because they were so full of themselves. They didn't need to see certainly didn't need or want the Lord Jesus Christ. And most of them were too wrapped up in the cares and the concerns of this world to give any thought at all to the need of their soul and eternity to come. They had no room in their hearts for Jesus. But the poor and the lame and the maimed and the blind They did. Why? Because they had nothing. And they were nothing. Nothing to commend them before God. All they had were their filthy rags and their disabilities. And here was this wonderful food. They hadn't seen food like that for ages. They weren't going to pass this up. And so they came. And it's still true today. Who are the ones who come to Christ? It is those who have come to see something of the bankruptcy of their condition. Now be careful about that. 
Because there are people who say, well, I don't know my sins enough. I don't know that I'm bad enough to come to Christ. When eventually the Lord shows me the gravity and the depth of my sin, then I may come to Christ. Listen, nobody comes to Christ unless they experience something of their need for Him. That is absolutely true. But nowhere does the Bible ever say that you've got to experience so much need before you come to Him. You know what that is? That's conditional salvation. And there are no conditions on the call of the gospel. The only condition is that you come. That you come. And this is what the poor do. Because they have nothing. Because they are nothing. And they know that the Lord is willing and gracious and willing to receive them. Oh, they come because they're drawn by the cords of His love and His grace and His mercy. Can you identify with these people? Are there poor and lame and maimed here in Monarch this evening? Beloved, don't try to fix yourself up. Don't try to meet certain conditions. The call of the gospel is if you're outside of Christ, the call of the gospel is to come to Him. And whatever you are lacking, you bring it to Him. You say, oh Lord, I don't know enough about my sin. Bring it to Him. He'll teach you. You say, oh Lord, I don't know if you're willing to receive me. You go to Him anyway. And He will receive you. You go to Him with with all of your conditions, all of your excuses, and you lay them all out at His feet. But come. That's the point. Come. Secondly, we learn here by what means Christ is pleased to invite sinners to partake of His salvation. What are the means that Christ uses to draw the poor and the maim and the blind to Him? Well, it's in the parable. It is the servant. And who's the servant? The servant represents ministers of the gospel. Preachers who are called by God and ordained by God and equipped by God to stand behind the pulpit and to proclaim the invitations of the gospel to all who will hear it. That's my task. And what a glorious task it is to invite sinners, to tell sinners, come for all things are now ready, is the best task a man can ever have. That's my task here this afternoon, to remind you that all things are now ready, congregation. Nothing needs to be added. Christ has done it all when He was on the cross. He said, it is finished. Finished. So, so, we, so we don't come with our tears. We don't come with our moans and our sighs and our sorrows. We don't come with our conviction of sin and our spiritual experiences and all the rest. We come with nothing. Nothing in my hands I bring. What's the rest? Simply to thy cross I cling. That's it. And this is the calling of ministers of the gospel, to invite sinners, to compel sinners to come. That's the word that he uses here in the parable, isn't it? Compel them to come in. Ministers are not lecturers. Ministers don't stand behind a pulpit and lecture about doctrine. The task of the minister of the gospel is to compel, to constrain, to urge, to take away all the excuses as I tried to do this afternoon, and to present the Lord Jesus Christ in all of His beauty and His willingness to save sinners and to warn them of the consequences if they do not heed His invitations and come to Him. And what the church needs today are ministers of the gospel who know how to compel. So little of that kind of preaching nowadays. 
This is how Paul preached. Listen to what he said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. That's a minister of the gospel. He's an ambassador for Christ. As though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. Luther said, this is Paul on his knees. This is Paul preaching on his knees. Pleading with sinners. This is Robert Murray McShane saying, I preach as a dying man to dying men. There's a compulsion in it. There's a concern There's a moti- that's motivated by concern for the souls of people. And that concern is expressed by God Himself ultimately because God Himself has said in His Word, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their evil ways and live, live. Oh, why will you die, O house of Israel? That's our God. That's the heart of God. He doesn't want anyone to perish, but all to come to faith and repentance in Him. Now I know that only the Holy Spirit can bring a sinner to Christ. But the Holy Spirit is pleased to use this kind of preaching, convicting, persuasive preaching to that end. He's pleased to use compelling preaching to that end. Oh, may the Lord give us such men to preach like that today. We learn here thirdly what a loving and gracious Savior we have. You see it? He prepares this table full of all of the best food you can possibly imagine and He invites sinners to come and partake of it. The maimed and the poor and the blind. The people have no right to sit at such a table. And He compels them even to come in. No one is too unworthy for the Savior. No one is too sinful for the Savior. He is willing. He is able to receive all who come to Him. What a Savior. What a gracious, loving Savior we have in Christ. We learn here, fourthly, that every one of God's elect will be saved. The house will be filled. God's decree of election will come to pass. Christ will not shed His blood in vain. Not a drop of His blood will be shed in vain. Every drop of His precious blood will be put to good use in redeeming the souls of those whom God has chosen from an everlasting eternity. Every seat will be filled. Every one of God's elect will enter into glory. If you're converted tonight, never worry that that you will lose your salvation. You cannot. You will not. You will not. If you're truly converted to God, you will not. God will bring every one of His children to glory. There will be a seat for them at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we learn here, fifthly, that there is in Christ an inexhaustible supply of grace and mercy. You know, even every, after all of the poor and the maimed and the blind and whatnot, even, even after all of them were seated at the table, we read in the parable, and yet there was room Yet there was room. And the master sent the servant, as we heard already, to go out of the highways and the hedges and compel them to come in. Oh, do you see in this a picture of the grace, the boundless grace, the inexhaustible grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. Let us never think that there's grace for some, but not for me. Never think that way. There is grace for all. All who will believe will be saved. And finally, we learn here how rich we are as believers in Christ. Are you a believer in Christ? You're rich. You are fabulously wealthy. Far beyond what the world can ever imagine. You're a guest at His table. And I've already told you the kinds of dishes that are on the table. There's the forgiveness of sins, the adoption of sons, and and everlasting life. And these things cannot be bought with money. These are priceless gifts given by God 
himself. And he lays them before us. He says, they're all yours, my child. My son, my daughter, this is what my son has done for you. Go ahead. Feast on all that I have prepared. Don't be bashful. Don't be shy. It's all yours. God has prepared a great supper. And the invitations have gone out many times. Also tonight. What will you do with this invitation? Jesus ends this parable in verse 24 with these words, For I say unto you, that none of those men which were bidden shall taste of my supper. He's talking here about the scribes and the Pharisees, the people who thought that they didn't need Jesus, the people that thought that they were all good in and of themselves. They didn't need him. People who thought that they are the ones who would eat bread in the kingdom of God. Jesus says, no, you're not the ones at all. Those who will eat bread in the kingdom of God are the people who are the exact opposite of you. What a warning that is to us to guard against all forms of self-righteousness. We come to Christ as we are, poor, miserable, naked, blind, lame sinners. And we fall into His arms and we say, Lord, do it all for me. Because I can do nothing. Oh, such people will be seated at the table of the Lord. And they'll never be disappointed. And they'll never go away hungry. They shall eat and drink and be satisfied in this life and in the life to come. Amen.